So we're going to read Jeremiah 6, verse 16. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. And that's the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I'm starting a new series today that's going to have five parts, and I have to admit that more often than you might realize, I'm intimidated by the topic that I pick. I really am. And I was telling Emily this morning as we were talking about preparations for worship today, you know, I said, look, you know, I, I often go into a series of sermons wondering what I will get out of it. You know, you've heard it said that one of the best ways to teach or to learn a subject is to teach a subject. And so this topic today is daunting. I've read a lot about it. I've had a lot of, of training, formal training and informal study. And yet to try to explain it to people who haven't had the background that I've been blessed with is going to put me in a position of learning it better than ever. And in particular, I want to apply it. So we're going to talk this next five weeks about John Wesley's concept of perfect love, or what he would also call entire sanctification. And I really want to be entirely sanctified. I personally really want that to happen. But first of all, we have to understand what it means, and then we have to understand how it works and so it's going to take me five weeks to flesh this out with you. And I'm anxious to see how it goes because I'm going to be honest with you. As most of you know, I just turned 60 about a month ago. And part of the reason I was a little ticked off about turning 60 wasn't what you might think. It was just this reality that if it's taken me this long to get this far, if it's been you know, if I do the math, I'm not going to live long enough to ever get close to perfect love for God and neighbor. I'm never going to get close to entire sanctification because mathematically it's impossible for me to move at the rate I've been moving and expect to get there. So I'm eager to see how this series turns out because I'm hoping that the pastor gives me some hope when it's all over. And so let's learn this together. We're going to use two resources. Number one is scripture, as always. And even though we only focused on one verse today, the truth is, is that one verse is only as good as your understanding of the entire Bible. I don't mean to suggest that you have to be a Bible scholar. I simply mean that if you want one verse to, to carry the day, that verse has to be informed by the entire body of scripture because the entire word of God expressed through scripture is the message, not so much a single verse. And so the first thing we can say regarding today's verse is, is it pretty much says that thing about itself, that if you choose to follow the ancient paths, the trustworthy route, you're going to have to be a Bible reader or at least sit under good teaching about the Bible and so that way, you're not tempted to base your whole dogma that is informal tradition in the church or your personal family tradition around a single verse. Well, I can't do that because the Lord says he's again that, right? You know, don't do that if you really understand the entire Bible because no one verse can stand alone. And this one verse tells us that in effect. 
but then people listen to what you say. I had this experience just this last week where I had a very important doctrinal discussion with a colleague in the community and we chose to disagree and how that will play out in the community may be something significant. And all I wanna to say to you is, it comes down to my doctrinal beliefs based on my tradition and training and his doctrinal beliefs based on his tradition and training and how that causes you to act because of them. How that makes you decide what you will say or not say, what you will do or not do. Because doctrine is the boundaries around our faith and the boundaries around our faith are informed by scripture in my world. And that means that scripture presents me with a picture that causes me to respond to the world in a particular way. And that's a lot about what this perfect love subject is going to cover. This series is also based on a book that I read a few months ago and really enjoyed called uh, Perfect Love, Recovering Entire Sanctification, The Lost Power of Methodist Movement by Kevin Watson. The Lost Power of the Methodist Movement by Kevin Watson. In the sermon notes, you have a link to that if you want to get it. Great book. Great book. But it will ask you to do a much deeper walk with the Lord than you might have at this time. You can also see those sermon notes, by the way, in the Shiloh app. Now, if I do this well, and with the help of the Holy Spirit, I suspect we'll be okay, you're going to hopefully understand more about being Methodist. Not that that's our goal, because what a Methodist is, is a person who's really committed to a methodical expression of Christian living. In other words, being a Christian on purpose. That's, that's my definition of what a Methodist is. Someone who's determined to be a Christian on purpose. And there's an awful lot of accidental Christians out there. I was one of those. I was born in the Roman Catholic tradition. I was born in a Catholic home by Catholic parents who were raised in Catholic homes too. Now, what I'm going to share with you is my personal testimony and not a, uh, a criticism of Catholic Church. So I hope that's not heard that way. It's really just my experience of it and how that brought me to this place where I'm standing in front of you as a Methodist preacher. Um, I was raised in the Methodist or the, the Catholic tradition, and then later in my life, I came to find out that my dad's dad was actually a Methodist before he met my dad's mother and joined the Catholic Church to marry her. And so, at least on my dad's side of things, there wasn't a lot of Catholic history before him. I will say my dad died as one of the best examples of a Catholic Christian I've ever known. And so this is not, as I, said, as I said earlier, a criticism of the Catholic tradition, but this has been my experience. So my first experience with uh, the Methodist tradition, and, and these were United Methodist churches, but my first Methodist experience was as a Boy Scout in a troop that was sponsored by a Methodist church. So every week when I was a teenager and a young kid, I went to Ingemar United Methodist Church in Ingemar, Pennsylvania to go to uh, sit under the leadership of my outstanding manly man of a, of a scoutmaster, Mr. John Hurth. He had handlebar mustache. How cool is that? You know? He was a lineman for Ma Bell. 
I didn't learn much about being a Methodist there, but the word was familiar to me because of that experience. And so it was that after high school and all our friends moved away, uh, two of us uh, undecideds sort of floundered after uh, graduation and found each other and got married, and she was a Methodist. And so uh, we got married in her church, and I learned a lot about being a Methodist in those days. Well, the marriage only lasted a few years and didn't produce any children or anything, but the Methodist way of doing things stuck with me to this day. So if a failed marriage can be seen as valuable in some way, historically, as you look at your whole lifespan, it could be argued that it brought me to this moment because I became very familiar with Methodist tradition and practice. Probably knew more than that person who was raised in that tradition did because what often happens when you're a convert is you seek the religion you've chosen intentionally and therefore desire to understand the tenets of that tradition. And so it was with me. And so later in life, when Laura and I married and had children together and we were trying to attend the Catholic Church where we thought that was our home, uh, we were ostracized. We were coldly received as people who had been divorced. And we were told by a, a dispassionate and kind of mean-spirited priest that we better not show up and expect the sacrament because we weren't permitted anymore to receive it unless we got an annulment. And having reviewed our case, he said we couldn't get an annulment. Well, there's a good way to make people quit going to your church. And I happen to know that there are many people associated with Shiloh now and in the past who have had similar experiences. And so that combined with the cold reception we got when we uh, wanted to have our child baptized in the Catholic church where we lived drove us to the local Methodist church. Our daughter was already in the preschool, and I said, hey, Laura, I know my way around this building, and I even know my way around what those people do in worship and why. And she, being the devoted, wonderful, loyal lover that I have lived my last 32 years with, I can say with confidence that she meant it when she said, whatever you say, honey. And so there we went. And now the rest is history. Here we are. And what I learned about being a Methodist was that we needed grace and Methodist tradition had plenty of it. Our whole family needed grace and the Methodist tradition is built around John Wesley's doctrine of grace. You might recall from several weeks ago that I outlined his different kinds of grace and how they apply in our lives. But let me just review in a more brief way and uh, as a personal witness that what we learned was is that our God for the sake of his deep love for his son divined that his entire purpose would be to create these perfect companions for his son called the Adam or the people that he put in the Garden of Eden and that this God for love of that Creation, that perfect creation, well, imperfect, but ready to be perfected in grace, 
that for love of the people God made, and especially for the love of the Son, God kept the way of grace open. Even though the gates of Eden closed, God's grace avenues remain wide open. What's more is that God's grace is prevenient. That is to say, he is after you. He's pursuing you. Not like when you go down in the basement in the middle of the day and turn off all the lights and run up the stairs because for a second it's just a little scary, right? I know nobody's ever had that experience. Depends on your basement, I suppose. And when you run out of street lights, walking the dog and you and the dog walk a little bit faster. It's not that kind of pursuit we're talking about. This is a lover who won't give up on winning you for a lifelong affection. That's a pursuit. That's a prevenient kind of grace. And so all you have to do to receive God's grace in the Wesleyan way of looking at things is stop moving. Turn around and embrace it. And find, like Jesus said so beautifully in the, in the story of the prodigal son, find that you are not only running home, but home is running toward you. That the Father is in pursuit of you so that even as you turn, he's hiked up his skirt. You know, when I'm wearing this robe, it makes me think about it because it was so undignified for an old godly man to hike up his skirt and run. But that's how badly he wanted to pursue his lost son and restore him. And this is the point of the story. So I learned as I became a Methodist that John Wesley taught of God's grace that is so amazing that he chases you down, but he won't catch you even though he could. He will simply let you stop running and fall exhausted into his arms because he's right there. And then having been taken home by him, this same God will then justify you to all the heavenly hosts, justify you to all the lesser gods, those, those members of his divine counsel. He'll, he'll justify you to his son who he has appointed as king of kings and lord of lords and the master of all the kingdom that God made for him. He will justify you in the name of the Son. He will say, because of my Son, you are forgiven. And you have been restored to the same type of relationship that Adam once had with me. And so you're justified by God's amazing grace. And there is just the beginning of something that we will spend the rest of these five weeks talking about, these next four weeks, I suppose, is that then he will sanctify you with his grace. You do understand that this word grace is coming up a lot in our conversation. Grace, if you haven't figured it out or haven't used the word a lot in your life, is unmerited favor. You all do it. 
You all do it at different times in your life. Most of the time, I suspect, for children and grandchildren and elders and loved ones, you give someone something they haven't exactly done anything to deserve, but you can't help it because you love them so much. And this is grace. And God's grace is like that. He follows you, pursues you, chases you down because he loves you so much, not because you deserve it. And he justifies you before all of heaven in the name of his son, who, who, by the way, he allowed to be sacrificed so that for the sake of his unprecedented love, you could be saved. And there he goes again, giving you a gift you didn't deserve and didn't earn, but you get it. And then he says, you know, I'm not done yet. Now that I have them home, it's time to start raising them proper. Think about that for a minute. Oh, do I ever want to talk about stranger things and how it ties to the Bible, but I shan't. I will tell you, we got some great studies coming up for those of you who are interested. But here's what you need to know. There, there's a character in that show who's lost and hasn't been raised proper who's been raised in this strange environment that is not natural and so needs to be reoriented and realigned with the way things really are. They go from upside down to right side up, and that is the Christian condition. When we have been saved and justified by God's grace, we've been turned upside down, or to put it a better way, right side up. And we're no longer living in this dark, sin-afflicted condition that we once had. And so God enables us to become properly oriented by sanctifying us. We use the word sanctification a lot, and it really bears repeating that sanctification is a sort of spiritual maturity. It's an intentional process where you unite your inner being with the being of God or your heart and mind with God's heart and mind, the logos, and you intentionally join with what the Holy Spirit is doing. And, you know, let's be honest, that's a little bit like, oh, I got to use this illustration. I have wanted to use this one for 20 years. So I used to live, I, my first church appointment was in a little town called Lanesville, and the town didn't even have a stop sign. You could blow right through it, and, and you know a lot of people slowed down because the county constable or the town constable might be working, you know, because he had like 10 hours a week, and if you knew when he was working, you'd better take it slow. And some guy came in there with a really hot, hopped-up motorcycle because there was a place that was very popular with Harley-Davidson riders called Hogs Tavern in Lanesville. You can look this up. And there was this fellow that drove one of those little mini scooters. You know what I'm talking about. You see people riding them around town. I hate to say you see about a dozen of them parked outside the county jail on any given day. And he was riding one of those through town, and one of these guys with his big, you know, 2,000cc or more big motorcycles, he's pulling out of Hogs Tavern, and, and he happens to pull out just as Tater's going by on his little scooter. And Tater was a guy who's well, whose belly kind of overflowed his, his uh, belt line a little bit, so he wore these suspenders everywhere. 
And the guy on the Harley pulls up next to him and he says, hey, fella, how fast will that go? And Tater says, you know, he's only got a few teeth in his face. And he says, well, I reckon I can beat you in a race from here to the post office at the other end of town. And the guy on the motorcycle is laughing his head off. He says, sure, buddy, let's go. So Tater kind of leans in and he goes, what are you going to give me if I win? And he says, well, I'll take you back up to the tavern here and buy you anything you want. Tater says, all right. And so, run, 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 the guy fires up his motorcycle and off he goes. Whoosh, down the street. And every time he looks over his shoulder, Tater's right there. I mean, he is right behind him. He's so close, he could pass him at any moment. And he's thinking, this is impossible. And they finally get to the post office and then old Tater just flies right past him. And he gets down there to the road that goes up to the high school and he finally kind of skids to a stop and he comes puttering back up to the guy and motorcycle man says, hey, I'm sorry, I'm gonna go ahead and buy you that drink because I am amazed at how fast your little scooter will go. And <laughs> Tater says, I reckon it little, went a little faster than I thought it would too. And, and, and I'll tell you why I think that happened. And he said, see, when I leaned over there to ask you what I was going to win, I caught my suspenders caught on your mirror. <laughs> 20 years I've been waiting to tell that story. And here's the thing. If sanctification is nothing else, it is hitching your suspenders to a far more powerful force than you could generate on your own, and then being slung along at a rate that you could not have imagined, only to eventually be slingshotted into, who knows, heavenly grace. So that's sanctifying grace, and I learned about that when I became a Methodist, and I liked the sound of it. But now we're, now we're there with this, this uh, perfect love, this entire sanctification. And, and I've gone 60 years strapped to that motorcycle with my suspenders being dragging behind but looking forward to the day when I could get slung forward. And, and I'm thinking I'm going to run out of time. Now, it's another topic for another day, but some of you will recall that I preached this on many occasions. Your journey doesn't stop when you die, but I'd sure like to be that far along before I die because it's just a pretty worthy goal. And what it does is it gives me something to aim at when maybe my faculties have failed and my body isn't as good as it used to be and maybe I need to live in the inner parts of this building across the street so people can help me with the most basic things. Maybe all of that will happen before I die, but I can continue this pursuit even then. This perfect love for God and neighbor, this entire sanctification. Yeah, I'm a Methodist and I came that way on purpose. And I'm not trying to sell you on being Wesleyan or Methodist. What I really want you to understand is this, West, this Wesleyan way makes us understand that we are dealing with a God who isn't interested in our rituals and our rites and our smells and bells. He's not interested in our personal sanctification in the eyes of our neighbors and he doesn't care if our neighbors and our co-workers think that we're good 
Jesus even asked, oh, good man, why do you call me good? And you know, when he asked that question, he was sort of mocking the guy. He was saying, you've just introduced yourself as someone who's so good that I should probably endorse you as a person who has nothing left to do for God. But instead, I'm curious what makes me good in your eyes when you're so darn good in your own eyes. And the man says, I don't know. What else should I do? And Jesus says to him, you should sell everything you own and follow me. And the guy can't do it. We call that story the tale of the rich young fool, but I don't think he's a fool. I think he's somebody who's been fooled by a worldly view of religion, by a worldly idea of what it means to follow Christ. He's not interested in a bunch of humanistic rules. We've had a pandemic going on in the life of the church for hundreds of years, and it's called secular humanism. This pandemic is dividing our denomination right now, and it may even divide some of us because you can either choose to follow Christ like Tater stuck to a motorcycle that is a thousand times more powerful than his little scooter, or you can choose to practice a religion but never practice it so well that you can do it without practice. <laughs> you can choose, as I did once in my life, to seek at whatever the cost to relationships with family and friends and my own comfort to do something new and fresh, which is where I think we are in the life of this church. We have chosen to consider a new and better way of being Christ followers and servants to our heavenly king. I don't know how much you've considered all that we've been talking about, but I do know what you've been talking about, and it really isn't about denominations. Well, I should say I'm not here to talk about denominations. I'm not here to talk about those things that I think many of you are concerned about right now. I got in trouble with a community colleague in a relatively simple way because I said, I don't want to talk about that. You can make this about the cheap shots if you want, and you can reply with cheap shots. I grew up in Pittsburgh where we had a really great hockey team, and you know, I still follow them, and I know what a cheap shot looks like. It's usually slapping somebody upside the head with your stick. And I don't want to do that in the name of Jesus Christ. And so I refuse to talk about that any more than is necessary to help you do proper discernment. But what I do want to spend the next month talking to you about is yours and mine and our journey towards perfect love for God and neighbor, our entire sanctification, because that matters. Inasmuch as our tradition and our religion and our denomination and more importantly, our doctrinal standards will inform that process, I will address them in this holy setting. Because I want us to be able to say before the Lord with integrity, I sought you even while I was trying to find a way to relieve my discomfort but you were more important than that. 
And if I haven't achieved my goal, then so be it. But my goal is to not tempt you or lead you astray because of my own comfort. And so we're going to talk about how we became intentionally Methodist over this summer and into this coming year. And we intentionally chose entire sanctification as the goal that we would work towards even when nothing on us worked except our consciousness. John Wesley said that God raised up Methodism in order to spread the central teaching of entire sanctification. And what he means by that is, is there is no other purpose for all of these methods and practices, no other reason for these disciplines than that it would result in your entire sanctification. And if that hasn't happened, then you haven't done what he had entirely hoped you would do. And what I hope we will do together. Rest assured, I haven't figured this all out myself. I'm looking forward to seeing how this series ends so I'll know better than I do now. But you know, the best part about being your pastor is I'm willing to walk in front of you, but I'm not willing to be above you. And this is a good journey for us to be on this summer as we discern why and how we gather in this place from here on. And let it not be for smells and bells and traditions and a bunch of irrational and illogical things that make us feel good but don't mount to a hill of beans. Because the reason I'm standing here is because I turned my back on that. Not because I'm better than anybody who hasn't, but simply because that's what I needed to do. And thank God my bride and my children came with me. Let us pray. Almighty God, your word is penetrating and powerful when it comes entirely from your spirit. So let our process of sanctification include the hearing of your word and a changed nature because of it. Send your Holy Spirit to every open heart this morning. Let no one walk away afraid to change. I pray for your glory. Amen. Mm -hmm.